Amen. Thank you. Good morning. You can have a seat. Good to be with you today, Haynes Creek. Hope you are all doing well today. If it is your first time, special welcome to you. We are so excited and thrilled that you're here worshiping with us today, and we would love a chance to follow up with you. So if you do me a huge favor, let me know that you're here. Uh, you can just uh, text the word welcome. That's one way to do it. Just text the word welcome to that number. That's all you got to do. Or if you prefer, we have our welcome desk, uh, our table right out here uh, on the right as you exit back into the hallway there. We got our little welcome cards on there. Just fill one of those cards out, leave it on the table, and uh, we would love, like I said, a chance just to reach out, follow up, and thank you for your visit. And uh, church, we're going to continue going verse by verse through the book of Acts. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 15. So last week we we finished out Acts 14, and we, we saw the end of Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, and now with Acts 15, uh, we come to this, uh, this chapter in the book of Acts, kind of like a pause in between Paul's first and second missionary journeys, uh, often called the Jerusalem Council. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. And this is a, this is a pivotal moment in the book of Acts. It's a big deal we're going to see here in this chapter. And as you're, as you're turning there, as you're turning to Acts chapter 15, I want you to think about the last argument that you had. The last argument that you had, uh, if you're married, uh, most likely it was probably with your spouse, you know, if we're being honest, or maybe with your kids, if you have kids, or maybe you're just a, an angry argumentative person and you were yelling at somebody in the grocery store the other day. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you do in your free time. Uh, but think about the last argument that you had. Was it, was it a, a serious, was it, was it a big deal? Was it worth having that argument? Or was it, was it something small that kind of got blown out of proportion, that looking back, you're like, you know what, wasn't a big deal, probably overreacted, or somebody said something they, they didn't actually mean, or, or whatever it was. Was it, was it worth fighting over or not? I think if we're, if we're honest, most of the times that, that we have an argument, that we have uh, some, some disagreement with one another, it, it usually falls in that second category, right? It usually falls in the probably shouldn't have gotten that mad about. Now, there, there are things, though, there are things that that require that kind of action, right? It requires an argument. It requires some serious disagreement. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 15. Uh, now, let me just give you some background so you can kind of have it in your mind and place it uh, in terms of, of history, what's been going on here. So Paul's first missionary journey, so Acts chapter 13 and 14, probably took, some, took place sometime around 45 to 49 AD. All right, so, so right there in, in the mid to late 40s, probably took a couple of years. We don't know exactly when, but sometime within the mid to late 40s AD. Um, now, if you pay attention to, to maybe like some church history, if you have a lot of knowledge, you know that, that Jesus was most likely crucified anytime between 30 and 33 AD. So we're talking, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 or so years after uh, Jesus's resurrection, after Pentecost, which we saw in Acts chapter 2, Paul's first missionary journey takes place. And, and now here in Acts chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council. That took place around 49 to 50 AD. And, and I would say my argument would be uh, that, that just to kind of keep in mind of, of all things going on in the New Testament, um, I believe Paul wrote the letter of Galatians right before the events in Acts chapter 15, right before the Jerusalem Council. I'll tell you why, not that it super matters, but I just think it's interesting. So if you're kind of tracking with what's going on from an entire New Testament perspective, Paul most likely, I believe, wrote his letter to the Galatian churches, who he just got done ministering to and planting those churches in his first missionary journey, wrote his letter right before the events in Acts chapter 15. So with that, let's dive in. Acts chapter 15, I'm going to start in verse 1. 
And uh, I'm throwing a little bit of a curveball at you guys today. I typically, uh, for those that notice, I typically read from the ESV version of the Bible. That's the English Standard Version. Use that for a long time. Um, but over the last several years, slowly but surely, I have a new favorite translation. It's the CSB version, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, I just feel like it's, it's more readable, honestly. That's why I like it. Um, so I'm going to read that today, and we'll see how it goes. If there's a revolt, then, then I'll switch back. If not, then, uh, you know, we'll see how this goes. So starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 15, you can follow along on the screen, uh, or if you, if you have your Bible, great. Um, if not, like I said, we got the verses there. So Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Some men came down from Judea, And began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters." When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they, all, they, they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. Okay, just pause. Let me make sure we're all on the same page with what's going on here. So uh, they're, Paul and Barnabas, they, they come back to the church at Antioch after the events in Acts chapter 14. So they're there, and now some men from Judea, so some men from Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem church, come up, and they start telling these, these Gentile believers, your salvation doesn't count unless you also get circumcised, right? They're telling them, hey, that's, that's great that you put your faith in Jesus, but there's more. You got to do more than just put your faith in Jesus. You have to put your faith in Jesus, plus get circumcised, plus follow the law of Moses. And it says that, that Paul and Barnabas got into a, a serious argument with them. There's this debate. So they agree, let's, let's take it back to Jerusalem. Let's take it back to the church in Jerusalem. Let's try to figure this out together. So they do, the debate continues. So what they're arguing about here is the nature of salvation. How does one get saved? How are we saved? How do we, how do we enter God's kingdom? How do we become part of God's people? What's the definition of salvation? That's what they're, they're arguing about here. All right, so let's keep going. <clears throat> how does this get revolved, uh, resolved? Verse seven. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. So he's talking about Acts chapter 10, the events with Cornelius there. Verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. 
But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath he is read aloud in the synagogues. Verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders of the whole church decided to select men who were among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Verse 30. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message, which is every pastor's life verse right there. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. Okay, so again, there's a debate going on here about what it means to be saved. What does it mean for Gentiles to be saved? Is, is it by faith in Jesus, or do they also have to become Jews? So there's this, this big meaning, right? The church gathers together in Jerusalem, and Peter and James, the leading men of the church of Jerusalem, stand up, and they make it clear, no, salvation is by faith through Jesus Christ alone. We don't, we don't need to add more burdens to these Gentile believers. We don't need to make them start living like Jewish people. They don't, they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow the law. So they write this letter, sending it to the church in Antioch, to the churches in that area, explaining all of this. Like, do, those guys that came up there and started telling you this, don't listen to them, all right? We do not support that. That's not from us. We don't, we're not on with that. Like, don't, don't listen to them. Ignore those guys. That is not how you're saved. So the, the Council of Jerusalem confirms what salvation is, right? This is a big deal. This is a, this is a big moment. But it does more than that. It also sets boundaries for how this, how this new community, the church, which is still in its early days, right? It's only 10, 15, 20 years old at this point, still figuring things out. It sets some boundaries and some guidelines for how Jews and Gentiles who are now part of this new community, how they can have unity and fellowship with one another. So uh, for our time today, I believe the, the Jerusalem Council here in Acts chapter 15 confirms three things for us. It confirms three things for us. It confirms the definition of salvation, who the people of God are, and the importance of unity within the church. So let's, let's dig in here. First point, if you're taking notes, the definition of salvation. First point, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, this is the central debate 
of what's going on here in Acts chapter 15. And notice, notice, you know, we are taking some steps. It seems like, man, what are we talking about here? Like, really, circumcision, the law, what's going on? But notice, we are taking steps in the right direction, right? Like, no longer it's, it's can Gentiles be saved. Like, that was the, the, the issue in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are, are Really, like, God's going to save Gentiles now? Are we sure about that, y'all? Are we sure about that? Like, now, they're, they're good on that. They're good Gentiles being saved. So it's not if they can be saved. It's how they're saved, how they're saved. So we are taking some steps. So these men from Judea come up and say it's Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus following the law of Moses. That's what gives you salvation. That's what gives you salvation. So basically, yes, you can be saved, Gentiles. Yes, you can be saved, but you have to live like a Jewish person now. Yes, you can, you can be saved. Yes, put your faith in Jesus. Yes, believe Jesus is the Messiah, but now you have to also be a devout Jew as well. And it says that Paul and Barnabas disagreed with that. And not just disagreed. It says, it says that they engaged them in serious argument and debate. That's exactly what those words mean. It was a serious argument. It was a heated argument. This was not like, well, you know, let me just, if I can offer a counterpoint to you, good sir, let me just, let me just you know, propose a different. No, they were yelling at each other most likely. Like, this was a, a heated argument. This is a big deal. And Paul and Barnabas saw this is a big deal deal like we cannot let them come into this church or any church preaching this false gospel we can't do it and look this is why i think that galatians was written before acts 15 is because that's exactly what paul writes about in galatians he writes about this very idea but he doesn't make mention of the jerusalem council i feel like that would have been just easy like hey guys we already talked about this don't listen to those people here's what we decided as a church as the people of god here's what like but he didn't make mention of that so just you know side note for those that care. Um, so anyways, they, they take it to Jerusalem, and in that debate, they're, they're still debating there, like it's not cleared up, but, but Peter speaks. Peter stands up, he speaks, and he recounts what happened with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Look again at what he says in verses 7 and 9. Again at what he says in verse 7 and 9. He says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. What Peter's reminding these Jerusalem believers, these Jewish believers, is, hey, guys, just, just let, let's pause for a moment and let's look at this because this is God's work. God is the one who did this, y'all. We didn't do this. God did this. God sent me to Cornelius. God had me preach the gospel to them, and God saved them. They believed. He called me to preach, and they believed. And then he gave them the Holy Spirit. He cleansed their hearts. Oh, and by the way, he did it all without the law and without circumcision. He's reminding like, God is the one who's doing this, y'all. This was his plan. This was his initiative. This was his doing. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he tells them, Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? What he's telling them is like, guys, God's, God's at work here, and we're about to stand in his way. We're putting God to the test, which is his way of saying, y'all are, we're opposing God here. We're opposing God. And we shouldn't do that. That's a bad thing, right? I think we can all agree that's a bad thing. Nobody wants to do that. So he makes it clear, we're going against God. Don't do that. And then he sums it up in verse 11. I love this verse. 
On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. So what do we mean by grace? Grace is, is, is a free gift. It's a gift. That's what grace is. It's a gift that, that is given to us when, when we didn't deserve it and we didn't earn it. That's grace. That's grace. When, you, when you're given something that you didn't deserve, that you didn't earn, that you actually probably did the opposite of, you're, you're given a free gift. Now, that's exactly what grace is. That, that's what salvation is. It's God's gift to us. He gives it to us, and it's not because we're so amazing and awesome. We didn't deserve it. What, what we have deserved, what we have earned, is actually death and wrath and hell forever because of our sins, right? That's what we deserve. And yet God, when he saves us, doesn't give us what we've earned, doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he gives us his grace. He gives us grace. It was something, like I said, it's not something we can earn. It's not something that we can get on our own. It's not by our works. It's not through me just being a good person. It's not through me just, just trying really hard in my life to, to earn God's favor. That's not how it works. We can't do that. Salvation is a gift. So I'm trying to think of how to illustrate this. So uh, I told you guys a couple weeks ago that my lawnmower had, had been broken and I've been trying to fix it. Um, well, you know, finally I had to, uh, to give up on that. I tried everything that, that all the YouTube videos that I could watch that, that taught me because I'm not handy at all. I watched all those, did all the things that they said, and I finally did the last few things yesterday, still didn't work. So I finally, y'all, I had to do it. I went to Home Depot, and I got me a new lawnmower. And I don't know if you guys have been to the lawnmower section at Home Depot. They ain't cheap, all right? They're not giving these things away for free. It cost a decent amount to get me a new lawnmower. So I was not, was not a very happy person yesterday having to do that, but I got a new lawnmower. Now, now uh, in terms of, of trying to think through what, what, is, what does grace look like? Now, grace is, is me going up to the register at Home Depot. They scan it, and I'm ready to pay, and then the, the cash register person, the, the person working there says, you know what? You know what? It's free. It's free. You don't have to pay for the lawnmower. You get it for free. I said, well, did I, did I win a comp competition? No. Did, did I do something? No, I'm not like the best Home Depot customer out there. It's not like through my frequent visits at Home Depot, I earned this. No, no, no. Here's a free lawnmower. Like, that's grace. Now, now when we, I know that's silly, but when we think about it in terms of like God's grace, it's like a million times more than that. So here's a different scenario along the same lines with the lawnmower. Imagine, imagine that I had to get a new lawnmower or else I was going to die. I don't know, maybe there's like evil things in the grass. If I don't cut it, they kill me. I don't know. Guys, it's an analogy. Just go with me on this one, all right? Walk with me on this. So just imagine, I had to get a new lawnmower or else I was gonna die. I was dead. So I go to the store, but here's the problem. I don't have any money. I can't pay for it. I can't afford it. I can't do it on my own. I get up there and they say, you know what? Somebody else has paid for it. Somebody else has paid this lawnmower for you. Not only do I get a free lawnmower, I get to live, y'all. No longer do I have to go back to my house where the grass is going to eat me and kill me. All right, I don't have to die anymore. I get a free gift. I have been saved, not because of me, not because of what I've done, not because of what I've earned. Somebody has stepped in and paid the price for me, and that's exactly what Jesus does for us. That's exactly what he does for us. That's grace. That's the grace of Jesus Christ and salvation. It's a free gift that we can't and don't earn. So grace. 
The next thing is faith. Faith, faith is, is belief in Jesus. It, it's belief in him. It's trusting in him and his work. Who he is, what he's done, it's trusting in that for our salvation. That's what faith is. It's me saying, you know what, Jesus, I, I'm taking a step towards you. I'm trusting you to save me. I'm not trusting in myself, I'm not trusting in anything else. I'm trusting in you to save me. And sometimes I get a little frustrated with how faith is talked about in the culture. A lot of times it's said, well, Christians, you just have a blind faith, right? And that kind of makes us seem like a little ignorant, like we don't know what we're doing, like we're just, you know, oh, I hope this all works out. No, no, no. Our faith is not blind. Our faith is based on Jesus Christ. Our faith is based on God's word, which has good evidence for belief, right? We don't have a blind faith. We, we have a faith that is based on trust of a person and what he's done for us. So again, I was trying to think of, of how to illustrate this, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but um, little kids, like really little ones, like I'm talking like two, three years old, like the fear level for those children is like at an at a all-time low. It's a minimal, which just makes things really stressful and scary as a parent. Thankfully, as they get older, they get a little bit more fearful. Like I was thinking yesterday uh, with, with our two older ones, they've been asking to go up to the attic. I don't know if they think like special things are up there. Nope, just a bunch of storage boxes. But they've, they've been wanting to go to the attic. So we finally let them go up to the attic, look around, walk around, and then come back down the ladder. And y'all, they made it up great. But coming down, even though I was like, I mean, that, like, I'm not even that tall, but I can almost reach to the top. Like, it's not that serious. But I was like, hey, I got you. Come down the ladder. And like their legs were shaking, their arms were shaking. Like they were so scared. And I think about our, our little one, Myla, who's, who's 18 months old. And this summer when she finally got comfortable around the pool, she would like just do laps walking around the pool. But here's the thing. At any moment, she would just walk in, just walk right into the water. She can't swim. She'd go straight to the bottom if that girl just walked in and nobody was there. Like no fear of the water. And she knew that, that mommy and daddy were usually just like right there hovering around her because we knew she's just going to walk in at any moment. So she had this trust that if, even if I step into the water, dad's going to catch me. She had that trust. That trust was based on me being there, ready to catch her. She didn't need to look at me. She didn't need to, to see my arms up. She knew that if, if I walked in the water, mom and dad will get me. That's faith. That's faith in Jesus Christ. We take a step knowing that he's got us, knowing that he's going to catch us, knowing that he is going to save us. That's faith. So it's grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's the only way. There is no other option. It is belief in Jesus Christ. It's faith in him and what he's done. Not a general belief in some spiritual being out there. Not, not a general belief in God. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, not, not, not I, I go to church or I grew up going to church. That's not what saves us. What saves us is faith in Jesus. Jesus. Only by him. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I love how Paul sums it up this way in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit, now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. That's a pretty bleak outlook, right? Children of wrath, disobedient, following our sinful fleshly desires. But verse four, but God... But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Verse 6, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that the coming age he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. That's the gospel. That's salvation. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. All right, second thing that the council confirms for us is who the people of God are. So number two, our second point. The people of God includes Gentiles. The people of God includes Gentiles. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And understanding how, how these two groups were gonna relate to each other. So these, these men from Judea come up and, and they're basically saying, yes, Gentiles, you can come in, but you have to come in as a Jewish person. You have to come in and, and live like a Jewish person. And, and before we get you know, too hard on them, like, come on, guys, what are y'all doing? Like, remember, this, this is their understanding. Like, they didn't know any other way. This is what they grew up being taught, right? Remember, God's promise of salvation was given to the nation of Israel. The Messiah, the promised coming Savior and King, was going to be from Israel. He's going to be Jewish, David's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was the one that was going to last forever, right? And even throughout the Old Testament, like, there, there's other people coming in. It's not just only Jewish people. Other people are coming in, but they come through the gateway of Judaism, right? They come through by, by committing to live like a Jew, by getting circumcised, by following the law. But here comes Peter reminding this church, guys, remember what happened with Cornelius. God let him in without distinction, without distinction. God let him in and didn't put all these extra burdens on him. And then James stands up and speaks and says this in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, Simeon, that, that's Peter's Hebrew Jewish name. Sometimes it's, it's written out as Simon. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, if you underline things in your Bible, I want you to underline that, people for his name. So that might not sound like much to us, but when James uttered those words, every single Jewish person in that room knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew exactly what he was talking about because that's the language that God uses of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Every time they read about how God interacts with the nation of Israel, it was in this kind of terminology of, of you are my people and I am your God. You're a people of my own possession. You are my treasured possession. That's, that is how God spoke to the nation of Israel. They were his people. They were his people. And now James is saying the Gentiles are his people too. They're his people too. An example of how God spoke like this is Deuteronomy 7, 6. Look, look at this. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. That's how God talked about Israel. And now James is saying, oh, by the way, that includes Gentiles. That's not just ethnic Jews. That's Gentiles as well. 
See, the story of Scripture is that God's people, God's people is made up of those who put their faith in him. Whoever puts their faith in him is welcomed into his family. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. And see, James confirms this by quoting here. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote here from the Old Testament, and it comes from Amos, one of the, the minor prophets, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And this comes near the very end of Amos. And, and every prophetic book in, in the Old Testament ends with this, this hope and this call of restoration and this, this God calling and telling him, hey, I'm, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to save you, I'm going to bless you. Right? So, so it comes in this moment of Amos, after God's judgment on his people, here comes this promise of restoration. And here's what he says, verses 16 and 17. He says, after these things, I will, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. That's, that's the nation of Israel. God's going to rebuild David's fallen tent. He's going to rebuild and establish Israel, his people, a permanent, forever Israel, a permanent and forever kingdom, a permanent and forever people. And that comes through the work of the Messiah. That comes through Jesus. And now what does he say? Now what does he say in verse 17? So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. He rebuilds the nation of Israel through Jesus' work and brings in everybody else brings in the nations, brings in the Gentiles. And this was always God's plan. This was always God's plan. The promise that he gave to Abraham where he says, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna make you into a big, great, awesome nation. What else does he say? So that you can bless the other nations. I'm gonna bless you so you can bless everybody else. He would make him into a great nation to bless others. Like I said, all the prophetic books end with this restoration of Israel and this bringing in of the nations, this welcoming in of the nations and the Gentiles into God's family. God's plan of salvation is not Israel-centric. It's not. It's always been worldwide. God didn't want to just save a bunch of Jewish people or make a bunch of Jewish people. No, he, he wanted to save everybody, right? He wants to save the world and create a people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles. So the people of God includes Jews and Gentiles, and that's a big basis for how they make this decision. Like if God's going to bring people in without making distinction, who are we to add stuff to them, right? So second thing that they confirm is, is the people of God. The third thing that we see here that they confirm is the importance of unity and fellowship in the church. Unity and fellowship in the church. So the council confirms that, that uh, they don't have to become Jewish people, right? They don't have to become Jews. You don't got to get circumcised. You don't have to follow the law. But, but we are asking, we are encouraging you to do four things. Four things. These are listed out in verses uh, 19 and 20. They ask them to do four things. I want you to avoid four things. Avoid things polluted by idols or, or sacrificed or offered to idols. Avoid sexual immorality. Avoid food that has been strangled. And avoid blood. Four things. What's up with that list, right? Like, what is, like, I think we can all kind of, okay, I get maybe the idol part. I definitely get the sexual morality. Nope, don't do that. What's up with strangulation and blood? Like, what are we talking about here? What's going on? Glad you asked. That's a great question. So all four of these things, there's a couple of things that are going on. First, all four of these things uh, are all associated with pagan temple worship. 
So pagan temple worship, which is what all of these Gentile believers, what they would have grown up knowing and participating in, is the pagan worship at this time. They would sacrifice meat to whatever god they were worshiping. Sexual immorality was rampant in the temple worship at this time. In, in Greek and Roman gods and temple, all that kind of stuff, it was, it was rampant in that. So there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of food being sacrificed. Um, and they didn't care how they, how they did it, right? Strangulation, blood, didn't matter what, what was in the food or how they killed whatever they were sacrificing. They would do it all, all, it doesn't matter, right? They didn't have any rules or guidelines here. So all four of those things are associated with pagan temple worship. And they also, they also if, if, if a Gentile participated in some of those things, that it would prevent fellowship with a Jewish person. Remember the uh, the dietary restrictions that we talked about in Acts chapter 10. Jewish people were not allowed to eat anything that had been strangled, and they weren't allowed to eat anything that had any blood in it, all right? So steaks, only well done. I know, it's sad and disappointing. I don't know how they survived either, but you know what? That's the rule that they had to follow. So here's what James is doing. Here's what James is doing. When he, when he gives these lists, when he gives these, these four items, he's accomplishing three things. He's encouraging the Gentiles to avoid idol worship. He's telling them, look, I know y'all used to worship that way, but now your faith is in Jesus, we're done with that. All right, we don't go back to the temple, we don't go back to worshiping these false gods. Don't participate in that anymore. Don't do that. So he's encouraging them to to end their pagan worship, their, their idol worship. He's encouraging them to stop sinful behavior like sexual immorality, which was just the, again, the accepted behavior at this time, just running rampant all over society. He's like, don't do that anymore. We're done with that. No more sexual immorality. And then also, it encourages them to be sympathetic towards their Jewish brothers and sisters, to be sympathetic towards what they have going on. Again, we know from Acts chapter 10 how important the dietary stuff was to a Jewish person. And we know, like, in Christ, like, Paul tries to make this clear in 1 Corinthians, like, hey, you don't, you don't have to do that anymore. But, you know, some of them were bound by conscience. Some of them were bound by their own moral code that just wouldn't allow them to let go of some of these dietary things. So, you know, it didn't matter. You want to get your steak rare? Okay, great, do that. But a Jewish person might not do that. And if you as a Gentile eat that and I choose to abstain from that, like it might prohibit fellowship. Jews might, might be uncomfortable coming in and dining with a Gentile person and their family and, and whoever where there's blood in the meat, where, where something has been strangled. So it goes against their conscience. So he's saying, look, look I, I, want you to be, I want you to be aware and sympathetic towards your Jewish brothers and sisters. See, the council is saying that fellowship and unity within the church is going to help and be easier if you practice these four things, right? So that's what's going on here. So in order to protect unity and fellowship in the church, the council essentially advises a compromise here, right? Okay, Gentiles, you don't have to live as a Jewish person. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to follow the law. But Gentile Christian, I do ask that you, you do these things that would allow you to have better fellowship and unity with your Jewish brothers and sisters. So everybody's kind of giving a little bit here and meeting in the middle, right? Everybody's going to lay down their opinions, some of their rights that they would hold on to, right? That, hey, I don't, I don't have to do that, but they're going to they're lay that down so that they can have fellowship, right? So that's what's going on with those four things, all right? So what, what can we learn from, from this in Acts 15 as we kind of close up today? What, what can we learn? What, what does this mean for me? What is, when I read Acts 15, how, how can I apply this to my life. Let me quickly give you three things that we can apply to our lives that we can learn here. The first one that we can learn, don't add to the gospel. Don't add to the gospel. We see that, that what's confirmed here is salvation is Jesus 
plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So let's not add to the gospel. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are times where we can be like these these men from Judea, where we can add to the gospel. Maybe we don't say it with our words, but the way we talk about the gospel, the way we talk about church or Jesus, or we talk about faith to a non-believer, it gives off this this idea, this, this mindset of, yes, you can come to Jesus, but man, you better not bring any of that baggage with you. Yeah, you, you might be welcome to my church, but, you know, make sure you wear something nice. You know, make sure, no, you can't, don't, don't be saying that around my church friends, all right? No, don't, don't talk like that. Like, we kind of give off this mindset of, I got to clean myself up before I come to Jesus. And that's not at all what we see in Scripture. That's not at all. Jesus says, hey, come to me, and I'll figure out the rest, right? That's what Jesus says. Put your faith in me, and then let me work on your heart. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does, right? That's not our job. So sometimes we, we can even unknowingly or, or uh, even unintentionally add barriers to the gospel. Another way that we add to the gospel is just in our own personal walk with Jesus. Not about you, but I, I grew up kind of under this mindset, this legalistic mindset of, yes, you're saved by grace. Yes, salvation is, is not your works, but if you want to stay in good with God, if you want God to love you, if you want God to not be disappointed with you, well, then you better do these things. You better come to church every single week, right? You better read your Bible an hour a day. You better just pray for three hours. Like all these lists that we give ourselves. And if we don't do that, man, I'll, uh, I miss my Bible reading today. Man, God, God hates me right now. He's like, oh, Travis, like, how, how dare you? How dare you do that, right? Like that's, that's kind of the mindset. I don't know about you guys, but that's kind of the mindset of how I grew up. That's not the gospel, right? That's not what scripture says. My standing before God doesn't change based on what I do or don't do because it's based on what Jesus has already done. That's what the gospel tells me. That's what the gospel tells me. So yes, I'm saved by grace, but I'm also kept by grace. I'm kept by grace. I'm not kept by my good works. I'm not kept by my effort. Don't add to the gospel. Second thing, second thing, don't, Withhold the gospel. Don't add to the gospel. Don't withhold the gospel. Let's go back to, to verses 16 and 17. Chris, we can get, get verse 16 up there on, on the screen for us. Verse 16 here. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. Okay, so this is God confirming I'm going to reestablish my people. Verse 17, look at that. What's those first two words? What's those first two words? So that, so that, that's a purpose statement. It's a purpose statement. So that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. Why does God rebuild his temple or rebuild its fallen tent? Why does God establish his people? Why does God save his people? So that we can invite others in. So that we can invite others in. And when we don't do that, when we keep our faith to ourselves, when we neglect to talk about Jesus with those around us, when we neglect to even build relationships with non-Christians around us, we're withholding the gospel. We're withholding the gospel. We are withholding the gospel in that moment. God's salvation and God's blessing is given to us 
so that we can share it. God's blessing and God's salvation is always meant to be shared. And yet we don't. We keep it in. And we withhold the gospel. We withhold it. How, how's, that, how's that song go? This little light of mine, I'm gonna... Don't leave me hanging, y'all. Come on. This little light of mine, I'm gonna... There we go. Hide it under a bushel. Hide it under a bushel. No! No, we don't hide it. We let it shine. And yet so often we hide it. We keep it locked away. We keep it inside. We don't share. We don't talk. We don't invite. We don't let others in. We withhold the gospel. Let it shine. Y'all, this is what Jesus says. The words of Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let our light shine. Don't add to the gospel. Don't withhold the gospel. And last one, don't divide over open-handed issues. Don't divide over open-handed issues. We talk about this a lot. There's certain things in Scripture that, that are open-handed and close-handed, right? The open-handed are, are things that, that Christians can lovingly disagree with each other on. Like, we can have different opinions, and it's okay. And then there's closed-handed things that are like, man, we, we can't disagree on that. We've got to get these things right, and I'm going to fight for it, just like we see Paul and Barnabas do, right? Like, one of those closed-handed things is salvation by grace through faith. That's a closed-handed issue. And Paul and Barnabas are like, nope, we ain't playing around with that. But there's a lot of things, most things, are open-handed issues. Now, we get in trouble when we take those open-handed issues and we close a fist around them, and we hold them tightly, and we say, if you don't believe these things, if you don't agree with me on these things, well, then you're, you're not following Jesus. You're not a faithful Christian. You're not, I don't even know if you're saved, bro. We divide over these open-handed issues. And they can be things like, it was what I teach in our membership class, these second and third tier doctrinal issues where it's more important for us to have unity and fellowship than it is to be right. So this would be things like uh, where if you're Reformed or Arminian, right? We talk about that a lot. Like if you, if you love predestination or you hate it, right? We can come together as the people of God regardless of how you fall on that issue. Or, or your view of, of women in ministry and whether they should be called pastors or not pastors or whatever. Or, or really like eschatology, right? Like we can, we can have, uh, there's a few people in here, like we can all have 30-something different opinions on eschatology. And guess what? Most of that is okay, right? Most of the things that we see in eschatology is okay to disagree on, but, but we, we fight over it. So we fight over these second and third tier doctrinal issues. Another thing that we constantly, especially lately, that we divide over is politics. Politics, I can't tell you how frustrating that makes me. Just this week, y'all, just this week, I saw a video of a, of a very well-known, prominent leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, which our church is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, a well-known, if I told you the name, you would, most of y'all would know who it is, stood up on a stage and said that as a Christian, if you don't vote in the upcoming election, or you vote wrongly, whatever that means, didn't define it, if you, vote, if you don't vote or you vote wrongly, then you're not a faithful Christian. And I heard that, and I'm just like, 
I, I don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. What are we doing? We're going to say the participation in a civic thing that, that's allowed here in the United States determines if we're a faithful Christian or not? What? And if I, if I don't vote according to what you say, then I'm an unfaithful Christian? Like, what? I don't see that anywhere in here, y'all. Maybe y'all can help me out. Maybe I'm wrong, and you can point me to the verse. I haven't found it yet. What are we doing? Why are we dividing over this? Anything, like schooling, you know, what decisions you make for that? Entertainment, what, what books or TV shows or movies you watch or books you read, right? Like, oh, you, you read that? Oh, do you even love Jesus? You, what? It's like, what? It's a book, y'all, calm down. It's a book. Oh, uh, the car you drive, the house you live, how, how you spend your money, right? Like, we divide over these things. Now, look, we can say that some of those decisions are wise or unwise, but they don't determine if we're in the people of God. They don't determine if I've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't necessarily determine if I'm a faithful Christian. It might point to that, right? Like there might be some, we might need to talk about that. But for me to outright say, if you do this or don't do this, you're an unfaithful Christian with things that aren't clearly stated in scripture, y'all, we've got a problem. We gotta stop doing that. Don't divide over open-handed issues. So in Acts 15, we see, we see the church come together and affirm the beautiful truth of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that this salvation is open to all who would believe, right? Open to all who would believe, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, young, old, doesn't matter. You put your faith in Jesus, you're in. And this salvation is supposed to unite that when we put our faith in Jesus and he brings us into his family, he brings us into a united family, not a divided family, not a family that's fighting all the time, right? No, he brings us into one body that doesn't divide or separate. So Christian in the room, Christian in the room, let, let, today, let today be a reminder of this. Let today be a reminder of the beauty and the power of the gospel. Let us remember how it has radically changed our lives. That we were once lost and now we're found. That we were once dead and now we're alive. That we were once condemned and now we're innocent. Let's remember the beauty and the power of the gospel. And if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you never trusted in him, I want to encourage you, I want to ask you to let today be the day of your salvation. Let, let today be the day that you stop chasing after the things in this world. You stop living for the empty promises of this world and you put your faith in Jesus. It's only through him that our sins can be forgiven. It's only through him that, that we can find freedom and hope and purpose and significance and, and meaning, and it's only through him that we can have eternal life. And all that's required is faith in him. All that's required is taking that step and enjoying the free gift of grace that he gives us. If you want to do that, I'll be hanging out in the back. I'd love to talk with you today, or if you need prayer for, for anything going on, uh, I'd love to pray with you. Um, I'll, like I said, I'll be standing in the back, and 
Now we're gonna we're gonna transition like we do every single week. I'm gonna pray in a moment. The band's gonna come back up and, and lead us in a couple of songs. And, and this is a time of communion for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus. This is the time to remember and celebrate the very gospel that we just talked about. So Christian in the room, as I pray, I want you to encourage you to spend some time in prayer. You know, maybe the Lord's brought about some things in, in your life that, that we need to repent of, that we need to get back in line with Jesus. Do that. His arms are always open. Right? Repentance is always an option. Restoration is always an option with Jesus. Turn to him. Maybe you have been dividing and you need to go have a conversation with somebody and just apologize and apologize for the fracture that you've caused. So spend some time in prayer. And as the Lord leads, as you're ready, you can go to the tables on either side. You take the cup, you take the bread, you eat and you drink and you remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. You remember and celebrate the salvation that he alone provides. And we come back, y'all, and let's, let's stand and let's worship and let's praise our good God and Savior. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. You are a good God. Lord, you love us far more than we could ever deserve, far more than we could even ever fully understand or even try to grasp and wrap our mind around, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for the free gift of salvation. Lord, thank you for paying my debt. Lord, for saving me when what I deserved was wrath and hell forever. Lord, thank you for that, Jesus. Lord, would you use today as a reminder of what you've done for us? And would you use it to remind us of our purpose, Lord, that you have brought us in to send us out? Lord, let us go wherever you have us and be your light, Jesus. Thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you.